You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BNH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Weitz. Greetings and welcome to the BNH Photography Podcast. In 2002, Greg Constantine left a career in the music industry so he can focus his energies on projects of greater importance to him. In 2005, he moved to Asia in order to begin a long-term project titled Nowhere People, a photographic record that documents the struggles and plight of stateless communities and individuals. For reasons often having to do with politics, religion, and feuds dating back generations, the people Greg photographs are stateless. They live Kafkaesque existences, often unable to secure work, medical aid, housing, and the most basic of human dignities. Greg Constantine's work has appeared in the New York Times, the International Herald Tribune, Newsweek, The New Republic, The Atlantic, The Wall Street Journal, and other publications. I would read off a list of the number of awards that Greg has won, but with all due respect, we try to keep the running time of our shows down to about an hour. Trust me, the list is both lengthy and impressive. Greg Constantine, welcome very much to our show. Really pleased to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. It's yeah. great. I want to start off with a statement. We're going to cover a lot of things. And, and I, I started going over your work when, when we started preparing the show. And here's what struck me, okay? Your pictures fluster me. You're photographing the ugly underbelly of human nature. The images you capture are devastating. My problem is that the compositions of your photographs, the expressions on people's faces, what you allow me to see and what you don't allow me to see hijacks my eyes and hijacks my senses. What I witness in your photographs is horrifying, yet I find it hard to separate the visual aesthetics of your photographs from the frightening realities of what I'm viewing. Your pictures are often too beautiful for me and too perfect. And that's a weird thing to say about what you are photographing. Mm. Yeah. I mean, that's, I appreciate your, uh, well, your insightfulness and your own opinion and, and everything. I mean, I think that, you know, when you, I, I work primarily on long-term projects that are all about human rights abuse and inequality and social justice, injustices and everything. And, you know, I mean, we all walk into these kind of stories trying to, document them the way that we see them, but also at the same time, we inevitably and naturally add in our own aesthetic. Um, you know, I think that's opens up a really big debate in the photojournalism world and documentary that's not new. You know, the use of the aesthetic when you're recording, you know, horrific stories of trauma and human rights abuse. Can I jump in real quick on that? Because yeah. uh, let's, maybe you can think of an example where in an editing process, there was a photo that aesthetically was, was you loved it, let's say, uh, or you like, you know, it was a good photo. Um, but it wasn't reflecting the idea that you thought was most important to the story, uh, or vice versa, you know, a, a photo that was really reflecting the idea, but it wasn't such a good photo. How do you make those decisions? What do you think through? And, and where do you tend to uh, favor? Do you ever take lousy pictures? <laughs> oh, sure. <laughs> I, oh, yeah, completely. I, one after the other, your pictures completely. are stunning. I mean, yeah, and that's well, what's jarring me about it. No, I do. And, you know, I mean, I, I, th I guess the thing is for me, there's also another component, which probably you might have recognized but didn't. But, I mean, I've shot film all the way up until last year. 
everything was on film. I just went digital yeah, this a year. Stark black and white. Okay. Everything was shot young. for twelve yeah. years. I shot Tri-X on a Leica and a Nikon F one hundred. And mm. this is this last year is the first year where I started doing a little bit of di- doing digital. And work. where'd you go with that? What uh, uh, DSLR? Well, or Leica? I, yeah, or, I mean, yeah. I, well, Leica's out of my reach in terms uh-huh. of just finances. <laughs> but I mean, I tried to mirror my kit because uh-huh. I had I was using an M six and an F one hundred, and so now I'm using a D seven fifty and just a, a, a Sony, Sony RX3, mm. um, which I love. Uh, I, yeah, sure. You know, and I think that that kind of mirrors the kit that I have. But, you know, the fact is when you're shooting film, you you have to make every single frame count as much as you can. I mean, you're carrying 50 or 75 rolls for a one-month trip, and that's all you've got. And so you have to be very diligent in terms of how you're shooting. And so, yeah, I mean, I take a lot of crappy shots, but you try to focus on – There's, I take a lot more crappy shots doing something on digital mm. than I did on film. Mm. Um, and that's just, I think, the nature of it all. And given the fact that most of the work that you see online, actually, I would say 99% of the work that you see online on any of the sites, that's all done on film. I have not posted really and what, anything on what digital. what prompted the shift? Um, you know, I mean, I think it was economics, I mean, because I pretty much exist and f- f- fuel the work that I do through grants. Mm-hmm. I mean, really, not, none of my work. I really rarely ever do assignment work, and that's not by choice. I mean, I think over the 12 years of working on Nowhere People, I was on assignment for a, for a media organization only twice. Mm-hmm. Everything else was done through grants, fellowships, commissions. NGOs? At, uh, mm-hmm. Some commissions from NGOs, mm-hmm. you know, but mostly through grants. Mm-hmm. And, and that was a strategy that I took to kind of – liberate myself from the confines of having to have on deadlines to be able to agendas other than the one you're working yeah i mean agendas i think is maybe a bit of a strong word but it was just basically i like to spend time on things i like to work at my own pace i like to to have the freedom to be able to direct the work and channel the work in whatever medium i want whenever i want i mean that's i think that these days that sense of authorship over the work is just such a crucial crucial thing for people doing documentary work and so how much how much time do you spend writing grant proposals and and looking for funding in this sense i'd say that i probably spend up to 40 percent of the year looking for funding applying Mm -hmm. for grants networking my way in with different foundations or building up contacts that can then lead to introductions. So instead of doing sending out a cold call email to somebody who could be a potential funder, it's always about trying to get introduced to people. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I spend a huge part of my time and efforts just trying to do that because that's really where the financial fuel is that I kind of mm-hmm. rely on to do the work. This, this, is, could, this is obviously a work of passion for you. What's the seeds of this? How did how'd you get started here? I, well, okay, I'll tell you. I Like you said, I was working in various capacities in the music because I was living in New York City. I lived in New York for most of the 90s. Mm-hmm. was working for HMV Records um, on various mega stores that they had. Mm-hmm. Worked in a couple other companies and just, you know, just felt like I needed to do something different. So I quit, cashed in my 401k, went and put on a backpack and traveled around the world for eight months. And that whole experience, I carried my dad's old Canon AE-1 with me. I really was not too much into photography at that time, but uh, just carried it, traveled around the world with it, fell in love with photography, actually fell in love with trying to tell stories more than anything else. Interesting. And as, as I was on that trip, my 
go a little bit deeper in the backstory, but my dad had my dad had had a stroke, a severe stroke when I was 16 in 1986. And when I was traveling around the world and left him permanently disabled for, for the rest of his life. And as I was traveling around all these different countries, whether it was Cambodia or Vietnam or Thailand or Syria or Jordan, I saw a guy that looked exactly like my dad. I knew that that guy or that woman had had a stroke. And I just started thinking, I wonder what their lives are like in this far-flung country where there's medical systems that aren't as developed as ours or anything. And I ran out of money and finished my trip, and I came back here to New York. I got another job in the music business. I worked in it for about a year and a half. And when the contract came up, they were like, would you want to work here full-time? I'm like, no, I want to get back on the road. So I <laughs> saved up all my money that year, and I went back out, and I traveled from, from Beijing to Istanbul overland for eight months. And during that trip, I said, there's got to be more of a thread, a purpose behind this trip than just travel for the travel's sake. Mm -hmm. So I decided to try to meet with people who had strokes in almost every country that I would travel through so I could learn a little bit about their lives, write stories about it, take pictures, and then donate those stories to a nonprofit stroke organization in my hometown of Indianapolis that had just started to do stuff online. So on that particular trip, I started meeting with people who had had strokes in Thailand or in Burma or in, you know, Kyrgyzstan. How do you or approach people about that? <laughs> to be honest with you, it was, to be, it was really funny because on that first trip, I fell in love with photography and storytelling. And on that second trip, it was like I fell in love with the process of journalism mm -hmm. because really I had to find the subjects. I had to find the translator. I had to do all those things that, that journalists do. So I'd be in a guest house, stay in some crappy guest house somewhere, and I'd, be, I'd ask the owner, do you know anybody who's had a stroke? And they'd say, what's a stroke? And then you describe it to them. They're like, oh, yeah, I know this guy who lives down the street from me and had one. Can you introduce me to him? Well, sure. Do you know anybody who speaks Russian in Uzbekistan? Well, sure, I can help you out with that. And one thing led to another, and I just absolutely fell in love with it the process. It was a whole process. That's it was a amazing. process that took years, but it was a course that, you know, I felt like was pushing me in one direction. And at, when what, you, at what point did you say, this is it, this is what I've been looking for, this is what I'm going to be working on? When did you hit the first I, project know, where you said, this is it? I, th I think it was, I think it was when uh, my girlfriend at the time, fiance now, we moved to Japan together. And I, she was working in a job. I was teaching English part-time, and the rest of the time I was just walking the streets of Tokyo, just learning the craft, walking around with my Nikon F80, you know, at the time, just shooting whatever I thought was interesting. And that's when I was just like, you know, this is something I really want to give a shot. So I started working on my first stories. And I remember I worked on the story about North Korean refugees seeking asylum in Southeast Asia. This is when we were living in Tokyo. And that process and the people that I were meeting and just feeling like you're a part of something bigger than yourself. Mm. And, you know, the, then you go through the whole challenge of trying to get it published. Who, pick, who picked up on it first? The BBC online ran like a 300 word story that I wrote and two pictures. On the North Korean subject? On the North Korean subject. Okay. And that was, that was it. Let me ask, this was a question I was hoping maybe to get one of those wrap up questions, but uh, you, you brought up journalism. You consider yourself a documentarian more, yeah. no? Is that fair to say? Yeah. And, but you said that you know, with, the, with strokes, you kind of learned the journalistic process. Yeah. Um, when did you realize that journalism wasn't quite what you were up to and then, then you didn't really want to pursue this sense of an assignment and a publication and then the publishing these stories 
you needed to work the longer form and, and kind of change the mentality that goes with that. I, you know, I mean, I think let's put it this way. I mean, I don't, I still, I don't think that I've shied away from that journalistic mm-hmm. fundamentals because I think when you're working it as a documentary, yeah, well, you still have are, that. The lines blurred. There's no doubt. Yeah, completely. I'm just curious but how I, you're but I think that you know, it was. Uh, I think there came a time where, a few years into it, where you start measuring your success based on what the ex, but you think other people's expectations are for you. You end up thinking that you've got to fit in with the machine mm-hmm. and the way that it's going in the traditional way. And the, always the traditional way is you're a photographer, you go out and you take pictures and they get published through a traditional outlet, mm-hmm. newspaper, magazine, online, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And to be honest with you, I, I remember that one of the, I, I came to New York, I had, I had a portfolio pictures and I was like so nervous thinking, man, I, I just got to put myself out there a little bit. I was living in LA at the time. I'd worked on the story that I really felt so passionately about. I was really invested in it. And I brought in a portfolio of pictures and I met with one of the, one of the agencies here, which I won't mention. And I walked in, this would have been 2003, 2004. And I remember, and this is right before I moved to Asia mm-hmm. to kind of embark on nowhere people. And I walked in, I sat down, I showed my portfolio and they were looking through it and they said, wow, we just, these are really great pictures and it's a really fantastic story. But do you have any photographs of the disabled Iraqi veterans? And it was at that moment when I knew this is not the place where I fit in. This is not what I want to be. I don't fit into this world. Mm-hmm. And, and so I just kind of went off and just said, I'm going to start doing what I want to do and I'll make it work one way or another. And was that a, and then let's say an aha moment that gave you a positive push or the oh, other com- way? A completely positive push. Mm-hmm. I mean, a frustrating push because sure. I knew that it was going to be, it would Harder. require a lot, you know, more resilience and determination. But at the same time, it's a that, it was an you. affirmation for me yeah. like, okay, this this is, I don't want to, there's no use in me exerting my energy and trying to fit in with this particular segment of the industry. It's this other place that I want to be. This is where I, this is where I belong. And so that's basically when I decided, okay, I'm going to, nobody would fund me for that first trip. I had some money saved up. I'm going to stretch my penny as far as I can. I'll move to Asia because that's where I can do it. Mm-hmm. And I'll just see what happens. Mm-hmm. And one thing led to another, to another, to another. And, you know, you, you, I studied business in college. I didn't study journalism, photography, mm-hmm. but you know, in that kind of way, you, you know, you take your photographer's hat off you put your entrepreneur's hat on to figure out how the hell to go about funding the work that you want to do in and a meaningful you, way. And then you shoot film. And Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Or actually, you know, to be honest with you, you are totally right. But then, but then at the same time, you're like, you know, you realize you're doing it your way. Yeah. You're, yeah. Absolutely. A question I have for you, uh, amongst others here, is that a, a lot of your subjects are people who have every reason to be fearful. Okay. How do you break the ice? How do you get their trust? Aside from the fact that you are, an, you come off as a very earnest, honest human being, but there's a lot. I mean, these people have defenses up. You know, well, there's culture, there's language, there's everything. Yeah, there's everything. There's so much going. Yeah. You know, what tools do you do you draw on to break through to make a connection with these people? Um, I, you know, I think that uh, I it, talking, listening. I mean, honestly, I think I record audio, mm-hmm. and whether I ever use the audio or not, it's that process of sitting down with somebody for an hour and talking with them, and they look at 
they take you, I think, this is my, again, this is my, just my own experience. People take you more seriously in that sense. They know that you're there. They know that you really want to hear their story. And and then that opens up. And then also because I have, I really do, it's time is a big thing. Yeah. You'll go back and visit people. You know, you, you invest the time. And when people see you coming back. The familiarity yeah, factor. Yeah, they're like, sure. okay, well, this, you know, this is, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They really yeah. do. And, yeah. and that, I think that ends up producing situations that then produce or open yourself up for images that are much more intimate and, and, and different. So you went from the, the North Korean story led to the greater idea of, of nowhere people and yep. statelessness yep. and tell, tell us where did it go from there? Like the next steps and well, so, and, you know, I mean, when I, when I decided to kind of embark on the statelessness project, it was intentionally going to be about a year and a half long, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, I wanted to move. I want. I knew I wanted to do in Asia. I was familiar with it. The biggest stateless groups in the world are all in Asia. It's economically, it was made sense for me. Um, but I also knew that there was going to be this process of, you know, all the people that I had approached before to try to fund me were just like, it's a great idea. We really believe it. We can help you out with information, but we just aren't in a position to be able to fund you. So I knew that I would have to. I would have to create a body of work that I could then leverage and say, this is what I'm trying to do. You mm -hmm. didn't get it then, but now you get it now. Mm -hmm. And so moved to Asia and started working. I was just so uh, amazed, so shocked, so outraged by the situations that I was seeing with these stateless communities that nobody was really spending any time documenting them or trying to tell their stories in a meaningful way. It was an, I recognized that as an opportunity for myself as a photographer. But it was just this curiosity and intrigue about w why is nobody spending any time on this? Mm -hmm. And it automatically opened up me thinking about how this story on statelessness, on this Urdu-speaking community in Bangladesh that I would go back to three times, just opens up so many much bigger themes that are so relevant. And I think that's what really, for me, I mean, that's so much of what photography and documentary work is about. It's about showing people you know, a, a, a specific situation, but it also then opens people up to thinking about the larger thematic elements outside of that story, how it might apply to other places. I mean, that's what I lo really love about the work. And so one thing led to another and, you know, I, I got a year into the project and w a friend of mine introduced me to somebody at the International Herald Tribune and I pitched them the work. And Cecilia Bohan, who is one of the photo editors, she was the photo editor in Hong Kong for IHT at that time. And then she was with the New York Times. She just left. But um, she loved the work. And they ran, you know, a full page spread wow. of the pictures. And then they ran in the Week in Review here in the Times. And that's when I think all these people were like, okay, now we kind of see what yeah. you're trying to do. Wasn't that – was that a – I mean, personally, what a great moment it must have been. Oh. And But also when – how much fuel did that give you to go forward? You know, when even one, oh, one published piece, like it, this, it made, I mean, it, it made, it made a huge difference. Yeah. I mean, it, it made a huge difference because to be honest with you, I was realistically a totally unpublished, mm -hmm. unknown, unrecognized, which I can't really, yeah. can, I can't really stand using that word recognized. But the fact is nobody knew who I was mm -hmm. and, and I had been just grinding to on the story. And then when somebody, an editor or mm -hmm. a writer believes in a project enough. It's like, 
It's this really weird sense of validation in a sense. Not that you're fitting into the industry, but it's Isn't like, you know, weird? somebody, <laughs> somebody believes in what I'm doing, yeah. you know, and somebody listened. Yeah. yeah. And, and nobody, it, it's not like it, it resulted into assignments for the New York times cause it didn't. Mm-hmm. But at the same time it was like, okay, I'm heading in the right direction yeah. here. It, a, it, it validates yes. what you're yeah. doing. Yeah. And yeah. this is what I, yeah. I'm, I'm doing something right and I need to keep pursuing it. And maybe a couple of practical questions. And this, obviously, the film aspect opens up a lot of practical questions. Yeah. But what was your uh, your process? I mean, even in the sense of of keeping and storing the film, getting back to a place where you can process them, did you give yourself like, okay, I'm going to go a month of work at a location away from a major city and then come back, yeah. process, edit? Yeah. Is that how it worked? That's how it worked for me, yeah. yeah. I mean, I was living in Bangkok and... You know, I mean, still live in Bangkok, basically, and I'd go out and do my stuff. I'd come back with 75 rolls of exposed film. I'd work with the Thai guy, great Thai guy who had an amazing dark room. He passed away years ago, um, and he processed my film. And then I did it. I processed my own food years ago, but then just he started doing it. He did a lot of work for a lot of photographers in the region. And then scan it, edit it, do whatever I do in a dark room. I started nowhere people. I moved to Bangkok the end of 2005. I really dove into the project the beginning of 2006. Okay. And, you know, and it was, you know, it's extra steps in the workflow. Mm-hmm, but, mm-hmm. you know, it's like there's nothing to me. Yeah. Uh, there's nothing more enjoyable than taping your contact sheets or a strip of negatives onto a window in a hotel or wherever it is and putting your your loop on it and looking through it. I mean, honestly, there is, that is, that's sexy. I mean, I really, and it's, I understand. It's such such an, especially if you're in your underwear, right? (laughs) It's such an intimate, it's such an intimate part of that process, you know, that, that I just don't get when I'm looking at my mini, my, my iMac. So let me come back to one other thing that I started talking about aesthetics and, and the visual yeah. imagery that you produce. Um, you don't have any formal training in photography, but what about in visuals and art and anything? Because your eye seems to be trained to compose pictures so that they say what they're meant to be saying. There's a lot of impact there. And a lot of people are journalists and they're just taking pictures of what's happening there. And and sometimes I wonder if there's actually much thought to the composition, aside from just keeping the subject in the center of the frame. Your pictures are a lot more sophisticated and go far beyond that. Do you recall studying pictures, just casually going through books and magazines or paintings? I mean, have you been visually oriented? Uh... I, to be honest with you, no. I mean, I've never really. I mean, so there, it's innate. I, I'm not going to go that far, but I mean, I think the fact is that no. I'm like, I've never doing. really, I've never studied art. I've okay. never really. I mean, yeah, there are photographers that I look to for inspiration over the years and stuff. But at the same time, it's Any like names? I've never you mentioned anybody. Oh, you know, I mean, there's the no pressure. There's no. I mean, anymore. there's the kind of the classics of. Mm-hmm. You know, William Klein and mm-hmm. okay. Jill Perez and, you know, I mean, yeah, there's, I know, there's, I know Jill, great. yeah, I mean, there's certain, yeah. there's certain people that like influence you in certain ways, yeah, whether they're else. aesthetic yeah. ways or whether it's the fact that they're so intrepid in the way that they do things or whether they're the, it's just, you know, whether they take the attitude of, you know, I'm going to do it my way and I don't care what anybody, I'm not going to mm-hmm. try to fit into mm-hmm. anybody's kind of box mm-hmm. for the, all those different reasons. You may not like their pictures, but you respect the choices that they've made. And so in that sense, yeah. Well, one thing, I mean, obviously there's many great journalists who can compose in a heartbeat on the fly, but, you know, given that you're not 
necessarily creating something that needs to be sent out that night. You're thinking about the long term, you're thinking about the process, the story. There is a little more time, I imagine. Yep. And you're working in film, you know, so that does slow you down and to, for the compositional sense. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I you know, and I, th I think that there's, you know, there's something about uh, the calisthenics that you run in your mind when you're shooting and working for long periods of time on stories over a long period of time that that aesthetic compositional element is something that helps in the creation of the longer story, I guess, if that makes any sense, you know, because I'm not really, I don't particularly feel like I've ever been the type of photographer that's working in single images. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I, I always feel like I'm working in a string, a narrative of images that goes on for however long, you know, and there's always something in terms of the compositional way that you shoot that adds some new way for somebody, for that one image that you're shooting to add on to the string of other images that you've created over the past year or two or three. So you, you also do, I mean, as you mentioned, audio and in, in film. Uh, so they're kind of multi, multi-discipline projects. Yep. Is that always been the case? Is something you developed along it has, the way? It yeah. has been. I mean, I don't think I do as much of it as, as I would really like or in, 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 ex, in an extensive way is what, what I would like, you know? I mean, I feel like I'm not, I'm not really as fluent in the language of video because it is a whole different language oh, yeah. than stills. Yeah. And I don't feel like I'm fluent enough in that language. I like, using video for something, whether it be an installation on for an exhibition or for something online or whatever. But I haven't really incorporated video too much into the larger kind of story, the way you're telling things. Audio is a whole different thing. You know, but yeah, I mean, I think we have these amazing tools at our disposal now to take stories to a whole different level, um, add on different layers to them. And, and in each one of those layers you add, in so many ways, it gives you know, I guess you could say more agency to the people who are in your photographs to be able to express their stories in a different way. I mean, you're the one who's, you're the one who in one way or another is kind of capturing the sort of collecting the information and presenting to people. But the essence, the raw elements of that story are people providing you with that material, you know? Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's what I really love about all these different disciplines that we have and the tools that we have today. Do you integrate yourself with the communities in the sense that you'll live with the people you're traveling and photographing with? Uh, or do you keep yourself back to your own place where you stay and then go every day in and out? It's pretty or? much every day in and out, mm -hmm. you know? I mean, you know, there's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's just kind of the way that, it, that I've worked. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of the communities, you know, you, you try to set yourself up in a place where you have easy access to be able to get into communities when you need to and to stay there for as long as you can, whether it's a whole entire day or just a few hours, um, you know. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the way it is. Yeah. Can you pinpoint or put your finger on anything positive that's come out of all this effort that you've done? Something that's happening, say, ah, this happened because somebody saw my pictures. What kind of... Results well, you're getting from your efforts, man. I mean, and I'm hoping you are. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, I think this is this is one of those things to where like, I I I don't want to place photography on such a high of a pedestal to think that it can really directly lead to change because I think that is a bit. It's a piece it, of it. it, it it's it's a, it's a contributing factor. Right. It's a you know when you look at all these stories about I'll stay just with statelessness. The fact is that it's a very legal, intensive kind of subject matter, policy, 
subject matter, which again, they're all different languages. Mm -hmm. And, and I really do believe that photography is this kind of language and it has to be inserted into these really important discussions, just like the legal, just like the academic, all that. And so for me, that's where I try, that's, I, that's what I try to do is mm -hmm. to say, okay, this photography needs to be inserted into this discussion that people are having. So I'll do everything I can to do that. But to kind of go back to your question, I would, I would say that, you know, I, I can give one example of something that I'm – of a project that I'm really proud of where I do feel like it made – a really positive contribution. That would have been the work on the Nubian community in Kenya. I mean, the mm -hmm. first book. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was it was like a discovery for me, that whole project. It came out totally organically. Nothing was planned. It was just one thing opened up itself after another. And I knew I wanted to go to Kenya. I ended up getting the funding to go to Kenya. I went and spent a month there with this particular community. And as I was photographing, they live in the Kabira slum in outside of Nairobi. I mean, that's their indigenous homeland. They've lived there for over 100 years before it was even a slum, before Kenya was even a country. Their history was so amazing. Um, and as I'd be, as I was talking with families and stuff, ultimately they'd end up pulling out like dusty shoe boxes filled with old, old photographs that they had never shown with their neighbors who were Nubians with sometimes with their own family members. And they'd show me, and it was just like this treasure trove of a visual history of this community that the Kenyan authorities had done everything that it possibly could to either erase or deny or challenge. And that was part of the reason why they were stateless mm. is all about their history. Everybody challenged their history. Mm. And so one thing led to another and I realized, okay, well, I've got my work that I'm doing here, which shows the repercussions of what's happened to a community as being denied or stripped of their citizenship. But these pictures that people are showing me show what this community had when they were recognized by British colonial authorities or before Kenya's independence. So the story was incomplete with just my work. And I realized that. And I was, and I just ended up thinking, okay, well, to be able to tell this story the right way, I need to juxtapose the old the photographs old with mine. Yeah. So I came back from that trip and I was just like, listen, I got I need to apply for a grant to see how I can get these open. I applied for a grant, got a grant from the documentary photography project, the open society and worked with a team of Nubian youth over a couple of months. They went out and collected all these old photographs. I think they collected like 350 old photographs. The oldest one was dated back to 1908. Wow. And uh, we digitized them all, had the discs sent to me in Thailand. I kind of curated everything. And then we held an exhibition in downtown Nairobi of the old photographs and of my photographs. The then and now, what they had and what they lost. And that had a prof had a huge impact, I think, on people in Nairobi, but it was like how it affected the Nubian community and the youth was just uh, – I'd never expected. Mm -hmm. I mean they were just like, so this is that history our grandparents and our parents have been telling us about that we've never seen before. It was hidden under the beds. It was hidden yeah. underneath the beds. Yeah. And they're like, we need to take up the torch that our parents have led to try to get – you know, our rights and we need to pick it up from here. And that led to, man, you know, Greg, you should really try to get a book published on this because internet wasn't so big. It could be a really great resource. So I went out and applied and started 
trying to get the money together to put the, to, to publish the book. And there you go. I mean, I ended up getting the money to self-publish the book. I did it with a, a printer in Tritone in Thailand. It was the first time they'd ever printed Thai, Tritone. <laughs> and it was amazing. I worked with an amazing photographer who's a huge mentor for me, Roland Naveau. He's just, a, just, he's had such a huge influence on me and my career. And we published the book donated like several hundred copies to the Nubian community so they could hand it out to people in Kenya to show this is our history, put a copy in every single library in Kenya, mm. you know? So, mm. and I feel like that made, it contributed, mm -hmm. you know? A music industry dropout does good. Yeah. All right. <laughs> that's a long, that's a long answer to a really short question. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> the thing is, is like, you're always trying to place your work into places where it can add to the conversation. And, you know, by having work, shown, I mean, it's becoming increasingly difficult, I think, for documentary work to find places to be shown, particularly in big cities, you know, London, New York, uh, you know, et cetera. You know, you, you naturally, you would think that there would be a huge inventory of places where you can show that kind of work. But in reality, those opportunities there in a lot of places are really limited. So you have to be really creative. I think it was in Bangkok. Yeah. You uh, had an interesting uh, pop-up exhibit. Yeah, I mean, I had a, we, yeah, I mean, we had a, we had a pop-up exhibition at a at an old abandoned bank in downtown Bangkok. That was probably one of the most, I would say, one of the most successful exhibitions of the Rohingya work that I've ever had. But you know, besides that, you're always, you know, you're always trying to get work into important places where important mm -hmm. people can be exposed right. to it, where whether it makes a difference or directly leads to change is in question, but at least it's getting in front of the eyes of important people. So the Rohingya work has been put in, has been shown in the European Parliament building in Brussels. And just this last, in February of this year, um, an exhibition was held uh, in the Russell Senate Rotunda on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C., as conversations are happening right now about a Burma bill that's going through the, the you know, the, the bureaucratic processes. And, and who was, put that up? Who made that happen? That, that exhibition was made possible through the funding of American Jewish World Service. Mm -hmm. um, the, it, a lot of the images on that exhibition um, were images that I created in September during this most recent exodus of Rohingya out of Burma. That trip was funded by the Center for the Prevention of Genocide at the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum. Mm -hmm. And they had a contact um, with whoever curates yeah, and, that Yeah, and, and so for me, yeah. it's like, you know, I think, okay, well, as a photographer, I can create the work and I can come up with the ideas for the platform that can then be used by people. And But I need to collaborate with people who can take it in much further than that. And Come both on. those organizations had connections with people at the Foreign yeah. Senate Relations Committee who could then open up the door for presenting mm -hmm. a proposal to the exhibitions team at the Capitol, on Capitol Hill and get uh, it approved well, and everything. That's pretty important. Yeah. That's pretty important. Yeah. yeah. Obviously. Yeah. yeah. I mean, collaboration is yeah. a big part of it. So. Obviously. Yeah. Great. How important is it to collaborate with a, a fixer, a translator, some, mm. a guide, somebody who knows the community and... How do you find that right person? Um, well, I mean, I think it's it's essential. Yeah. I mean, I I don't I I would say I don't um, I'd never really say fixer. Yeah, that's a you know I mean journalistic term. Yeah, I guess but, more. but I yeah, mean yeah. I guess it's guide. I mean yeah. really, and usually it's it's a translator who knows people. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and and who it, people the the community knows who can act as your fast track 
into situations because people trust them. And because they trust them- You can't do what you were trying to do without not. somebody like that. Absolutely yeah. not. It would be it would be impossible. And just asking around, yeah, finding the right person. Totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, you know, I mean, I think going back to what your question was, how do you gain that level of trust where a lot of that level of trust comes from association with a person who they already trust. Mm -hmm, you mm -hmm, know, mm -hmm. if this guy who from their community has kind of vetted me and said, okay, yeah, we'll let you in. Then th that's, and then when people meet me, then I think that they, it takes it to a whole another level. Mm. So, so I guess it's the stateless project that then led you to the Rohingya project. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think anybody, anybody who's doing work on the issue of statelessness anywhere, particularly in Asia, I mean, it's really not legitimate unless you include the Rohingya, what's happening with the Rohingya. Mm -hmm. And I made my first trip to Bangladesh March of 2006. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this was a story that was just nowhere even near the news cycle. We've been talking about that today. But, I mean, for us, it's yeah. a, a year we've been hearing this yeah. story. You've been on it for and, 10 years. And so. I was just so, I, I'd never seen a community or a group of people just so just disenfranchised, degraded to such a low level, just living bare existence that I was just so shocked. And I knew how complicated the story was. And so one, you know, two and a half, three week trip was just nowhere near enough to be able to do what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So I just kept going back. And being based in Bangkok- Mostly just, on your own dime? All, all, all on my own dime. Yeah. I mean, the, I've done- 14 trips now to Burma and Bangladesh just for the Rohingya story. And I think all of them for the except of two were on my own dime. Mm -hmm. And I, and that's fine. And I want it that way, yeah. you know, and each trip you peel, peel away another layer, you die, you get deeper into the story, you know, people get to know you. Uh, and if, you if you're coming back at your, on your dime, you're serious. You well, don't have sure. any, it, you you're, on, you're on their agenda. I mean, yeah. you really, you get, you just get really invested in the importance of why you're there and what you, what you're doing. And, you know, I mean the, the store I'd go on, I'd go on these trips to Bangladesh and the work would get published again in the New York times, but it'd be me pitching it to them. And that was great. Or it'd get published in other magazines, but you when, know, the when did the, the images from this story first find some international publications? It would have been, I think 2009 okay. is when the times ran uh, another big And at spread. that point you were working for years on this project. Yeah. So I'd already been three years into yeah. the Rohingya thing. And you know, the, the thing is with the Rohingya is that they, they burst into the news cycle and then they evaporate just as fast. And I mean, you know, and that happened over from 2006 until about 2012. That's exactly what happened. It burst in the news, something would happen and then everybody would cover it or not everybody, but they'd get into the news cycle and mm -hmm. then they'd just disappear. Actually, let me jump onto that too. What's the reception that you get or your work gets and the publication that you get here compared to other places, Europe, uh, Asia? Is there any difference? Is there yeah. any reaction that's different? Um, Is there any appreciation? Well, I mean, you know, to be honest with you, I think that mm, if you look at the, if I look at the work of mine that's been published, the majority of it has been published outside of the U.S. That's what it seemed. Yeah. 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 I mean, occasionally something will appear. Uh, when I mean Times, I mean, I mean more Herald Tribune, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. or now international. And do you, have, do you work with an agency now? Or no. Nothing. Okay. No. So it's all just the context you've made yep. and the editors you know. Yeah, editors I know, editors mm -hmm. you meet, you find, you know, you get, you create a relationship with an editor magazine that opens up doors to continue to keep going back to them. I mean, kind of the whole thing. But, but to be honest with you, I also found that, 
it was all, it's always, I think, exciting to see your work in print somewhere. Mm -hmm. Sure. Always. But at the same time, you, I think that working on these kind of stories, that exposure is so short lived, you know, I mean, it runs for a day in a paper. It's probably true more so now. Completely. Be, first of all, world events and national yep. events, I mean, it's blinding. You know, yep. We all checked our phone before we sat down yeah. here. We're going to immediately yeah. check to find out if the world still exists afterwards. Yeah. But um, I, I imagine one of the downsides of the internet, aside from the fact that it gives you an opportunity to get so much out so much easier, you also vanish quicker because there's such a flood Oh, information yeah. that's being hit. I, listen, I mean, you've opened up, I think, this whole terrain that I think is just so vital for people to be discussing nowadays. And and I, you know, I, I, I've approached it, maybe I started looking at things differently about six or seven years ago. And even though work was getting published, the fact is you don't, you, I constantly felt like the story demanded more. The people in the pictures, it just de it deserved more than just getting published well, for even, a day or two or a week. Looking at your your sites and even the way you present the work, it's different than when and we look at a lot of a lot of journalists, a lot of photographers' mm -hmm. websites and, and their work wherever we can find it. Yours is presented at least these stories in their own sites. It's not about you know Greg Constantine and then what he's working on as much as these are the stories. They're chaptered. They're longer. That's a good. When point. I first looked yeah. at it, I'm like. Is this guy an activist? Is he mm -hmm. a documentarian? Is he a journalist? What's going on? And that's to your credit. You know yeah. what I mean? Uh, so there's a, there is that element does come through in the way you present your work. Well, I mean, I appreciate you saying that. Yeah. I really do. I mean, it means a lot. And I think that, you know, you creating the pictures and putting the stories together and the projects together are one thing. But then, you know, you have to remember there's a whole other part of the process of photography. And that's introducing it for people to see, sure. you, you know, it. and, and that's probably the most important part of the process, at least for this kind of stories and projects that I'm working on. So for me, it was like, yeah, the work was getting published, but it was like, I've got to, I've got to take it further. And that's when I really dove into exhibitions that could be any form, guerrilla style, gallery, museum. It didn't matter what it was, as long as I could get the pictures up on walls. And I remember reading, I, it was funny. I went back home to Indiana. This would have been years and years ago. Went back home to Indiana and went to this small town, and there was this bookstore. And I walked in, and they had a, a, a wicker basket on the floor that was filled with old issues of Aperture in it. <laughs> and I went into this basket, and I pulled out, you know, a couple issues that really caught my attention. I mean, there was one with uh, – I think there was one that featured Jill's work. There was another that featured Don McCullen's work. Uh, I can't remember. And there was another one that featured Susan Mysaus's work. Mm -hmm. I remember there's an interview with her in this magazine and she gave this quote that I swear to God, it's like branded itself on my memory ever since the guy asked her about, you know, what is your, this would have been, I think in the eighties, early eighties when mm -hmm. they asked her this question and it all had to deal with just the challenges of getting your work published. And she said something to – again, I'm paraphrasing it, but she said, you know, what do you do when there's no magazines to publish your work and no pages to be turned? She goes, well, at least there will still be walls. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I even talk about it now and goosebumps, <laughs> right? Goosebumps come up on my, on my arms uh -huh. because it had such yeah. a profound impact 
on me and the way that I've gone about my work and, and all I, you know, I tell you, it's just, if I can get my work up on walls as many times during a year, that to me is, is my measure, one of my barometers of being successful in what I'm doing. And I mean, that's why, I mean, like, you know, in, it's only, they'll only be up for one night tonight mm -hmm. at CUNY, but this work on the Rohingya, it'll be up at CUNY for one night tonight. That's enough for me. It's going to be engaging like two, 300 people. They'll walk away with a whole different kind of context in their brain about what's happening in the Rohingya community, about statelessness. They'll walk away, you know, doing every, hopefully everything that I hope photography and the work can do. And that is to challenge people to think about things, to rethink things, to reimagine things, and, and walk away with a little bit more. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we're going to talk with Greg about detention centers, his latest project. Stay tuned. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at bhphotovideo, hashtag bhphotopodcast. Let's get on to your current project. Uh, yeah. Obviously, it's something that affects us here in the States directly. Yeah. Right I mean, yeah. you know, I th the last two years of working on the project, Nowhere People, I did a lot of work in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, it was like the, the one chapter of the Nowhere People project that had not been fully explored. And I was meeting with people, stateless individuals in different countries in Europe, and a lot of them had gone in and out of immigration detention. Because for one, they were born stateless, that never possessed documents, never had a birth certificate or a national ID card or a passport. They had made their way from their country that they call home or had lived in the, the country that they had always been they – they were born in basically invisible and, you know, uh, with no legal identity. Authorities would have asked them to stop them on a street, ask them for their papers. They wouldn't be able to provide it. They land in immigration detention. So a lot of people that I met, I thought I'd heard all the stories of stateless people after 10 years of working on that project. But man, the stories of people who had gone in and out of immigration detention just was uh, – had a huge impact on me. And through no, you know, I guess intentional way, through their stories, it was like – this is going to be the segue into the next project. Mm -hmm. I knew Nowhere People was coming time to, to a close. The book was going to be published. And I was thinking about what would be that next project. And, and so then I decided, okay, I'm going to start doing work on the impact of immigration detention on people around the world. Mm. And we're talking about people who aren't necessarily illegal border crossers or immigrants or the words that we throw around here, but people who may have born in a location without the paperwork, they fall between the cracks. And uh, and the systems that have been developed f look toward incarceration, at least temporary incarceration to fix these problems. And I think that a lot of the people who I've been focusing on with this project fall fall into that kind of category, but it's also the fact that a lot of people I'm focusing on are people that are coming to different countries, sure, whether it be the United States or Malaysia or the mm. United Kingdom, because mm. I've already done work in both of those countries, mm. seeking safety and sanctuary and seeking asylum. And because of the policies that are put in place in various countries around the world, you're seeing now more and more and more that detention is becoming mm. a central component and to often immigration. changing policies. Mm. Policies exactly. that change one year to the next. It's yeah. becoming a central part of immigration policy. And so the work that I've done in Malaysia, the work that I've done in the UK, and now I've just moved after being away for 13 years from home, I've kind of 
replace myself back in North America. And I'm doing work here in the United States for maybe the next year, probably two, just on the project. That'll be the biggest chapter of the whole project. And uh, so... The, did you complete one version of the project in, in yeah. Asia? So and the Malaysia Europe, chapter, yeah. yeah, the Malaysia chapter is is finished. It was just put up online on the sevendoors.org website. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the next year, other chapters will start to be released. Um, you know, it's in so many ways, it's kind of like nowhere people to where you kind of have a germ of an idea and then you just start going with it. And unintentionally, the project is decides its own course organically. And, and that's what's really exciting to me about these kind of projects. And, and, and after, you know, a period of time, there's, you might have, at least image-wise, you might have a lot that just seems so disjointed and little pieces here or there. But then over time, you start to, everything starts to take a bit of a shape, a visual yeah. shape. And, and that's This is a good lesson, really I mean, for our listeners and for photographers everywhere to kind of, it's a skill to be able to understand the process uh, yeah. or, or the experience that you have to, and then to see where the process will go and then let the process take you a little bit. Yeah, right? yeah. exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think when you're working on projects like this, it, particularly the one that I'm working on now where, you know, immigration issues are just so huge. There's so many different tentacles to them that you can find yourself lost down a rabbit hole and that takes you away from kind of the original idea. And, and that's really easy to do. But to be honest with you, it's also something to where the longer the amount of time you're involved in it and the more dedicated you are to it, the more educated you come, the more layers of context that you're building in your head about the understanding of things, the, 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 the more the project ends up really driving you. Um, and that's really – that's a really exciting part of the process for me. On that note – do you feel differently about the world right now? Do you feel that you are essentially a U.S. and American citizen? Or do you feel more of a, being a citizen of the world or maybe even feel a citizen of another country or culture right now? I mean, I think it's a really good question. I mean, I'm a dual U.S.-Canadian citizen. and um, and But I've lived outside of North America now for like 13 years. Mm-hmm. I'd come home and visit family for a month or so, you know, or less dur- during the years. Because you come home, you want to spend your energy with family and everything and you kind of, you know, let all the politics of what's happening in the U.S. kind of dissipate out of Mm -hmm. the way because you just want to have meaningful time with family. And then the second half of the day. Yeah. But, you know, (laughs) but then at the same time, it's like, you know, like, I mean, I do, I, I, I feel like I'm coming back to the U.S. with a bit of fresh eyes Mm. because I haven't been here for so long. I haven't, there's places of the country that... Had I been living here, I probably never would have gone to, but now the work is driving me to Southern Arizona, to Southern California, to places in the country that I've never been to before that I never probably would have gone to. And if I would have gone to it, I would have gone there more as like a getaway, you know, (laughs) but now I'm diving in underneath that kind of face layer and it's very it's the name it's, of the place is irrelevant. It's yeah, the story it's that you're really, after. Yeah, and it's really eye opening. I mean, mm-hmm. I've been on the I mean, I've I've been in I've been on the road now 
for like 35 days straight in Southern California and Southern Arizona. And I flew into New York for this event for two days and I'll go back to Phoenix and I'm living out of suitcases with my, with my partner. And, you know, we're kind of working on this project as a team in a sense where she's providing me with all this amazing information that I just don't have the time and research to do. But at the same time, it's like, you know, you, you, you I'm seeing a, an element of the country through the narrow lens of this theme of immigration detention. I think that for me, the issue of detention is just, uh, of at least immigration detention, it's just like statelessness. I'm meeting all of these incredibly inspiring people um, who have, you know, their people can look at them as victims in so many ways of a system, but also at the same time, I mean, in so many ways, a lot of these people are just total heroes in my mind that for just continuing to be able to, brave one day after the next with all these obstacles that have been built up in front of them, being separated from families, being thrown into a place to where they have no control or freedom over their lives, where the, the system itself makes challenges them to rethink their own identity from being somebody who's good to being a mm. criminal. Absolutely. You know, I mean, all these things. But detention for me and is it's not just within it's just not what's confined within those four walls of that menacing physical detention center it's the psychological impact that lives with people long afterwards it's what it's i want the project in so many ways to challenge people to rethink what detention is mm -hmm. from being something that has to deal with the architecture to something that has to do with the human element of it. Mm. How does it last long? How does it travel with people after they've been released? How does it deal? How do it, it does it impact a family, a family who has somebody who's in detention? The children of somebody. Exactly. I mean, I mean uh, the wife, take it. Take family. the conversation beyond that menacing jail-like prison. Mm -hmm. That's a, mm -hmm. a a place for people into the the, the more personal. You photographed a lot of different groups of people in different places. Do you do you, have you picked up any kind of commonality? Uh, uh, between them as far as why they're being persecuted and, and, and why they're stateless? What's the common yeah. thread between them? I, you know, for all those, I mean, I think during, for the whole project, Nowhere People have traveled to 18 different countries and there's at stateless communities in, in most of them. And, uh, you know, the, the legal elements between, behind why they're stateless is probably serves at as the, the least important or the least common shared. I mean, for me, those years of working on Nora people, the, the fundamental commonality that almost all of those groups shared was that they were stateless as a result of racism, discrimination, and intolerance to where those things, racism, discrimination, and intolerance had manifest themselves into the policies that governments had put in place to mm -hmm. intentionally arbitrarily deny them of this fundamental right of citizenship. So that was a very common thing where basically, you know, most of these stateless communities, they've lived in these countries for generations. They know where their home is. You know, the mm -hmm, Rohingya, mm -hmm. they know where home is. Home is Burma. The Nubians, they know where home is. That's Kenya, you know, uh, and so on and so on. But it's basically the governments because of discrimination, racism, and intolerance saying, you don't belong here. And the way that we're going to make you not belong here is by depriving you of this very, very fundamental thing that attaches all of us to a place these days. And that is citizenship. 
you know, it 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 build it creates such a central part of all of our the the starting ground for all of our identities in terms of who we identify ourselves are: mm. American, Canadian, British, French, Kenyan. I mean, so much of that is our acknowledgement and our recognition of technically belonging to a place. It was interesting what you had written about in regarding the Burmese Citizen Act and how they defined citizenship in this legal document as what is not as opposed to what is exactly and And the rohingya community was intentionally left out of that list of 135 national ethnic races that were recognized as being people who could belong to burma they were intentionally denied the inclusion of that i mean when people and this was one of those thematic elements of citizenship and statelessness citizenship throughout all those years that would just kept driving me is that here you have this concept of citizenship which all of us fundamentally fundamentally associate as something related to inclusion but this is something this is also something that can be manipulated manufactured and exploited in a way by governments to do the very opposite and that is to exclude people right. and not just individuals right. but entire ethnic communities that really belong to the larger fabric of societies all over the world um, and that was a really that was a really amazing uh, part of that project was seeing that those common elements and taking it to another level the legal apparatus here is questionable too because many of these people have not committed quote unquote crime mm-hmm. or have not been tried they're waiting and they could be waiting for several years before they get this chance and uh yeah, completely. Needless, needless to say that's something that you know shouldn't sit well with people well sure and yeah. i also think that you know this is also a time where and it's very relevant to the issue of immigration detention is that you know this is also a time where the definition of crime mm-hmm. is now becoming very blurred. I mean, there's a lot of gray in terms of what is a crime that is determining whether people go into a detention or not. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and, and it's a whole different conversation. Yeah. But I mean, it's I'm, I'm, it's a project that I'm really excited about. These 35 days on the road have been so eye-opening. They've pro- it's produced a lot of work that I'm really proud of so far. I look forward to the next year or two of just diving, traveling all around the country, so working about, on it. Uh, how um, the dealing with the authorities uh, when you have your camera and when it's clear you want to be photographing these subjects. Can you speak a little bit about that and also about the differences that you see from culture to culture when yeah. you're trying to, you know, push your way through the bureaucracy and, yeah. the, and the power structures? That get well, things? I mean, you know, you have – there's uh, there is a pretty clear rigid bureaucracy here in – here at home, mm-hmm. you know, where getting access to detention centers and stuff is is obviously going to be a big, huge challenge. But I also don't think that that's a key component to this mm-hmm. particular project. You know, and it's been interesting because you go to places like Burma or you go to places like Bangladesh or Ivory Coast or Kuwait or whatever it is where you run it, you, your relationship with the authorities changes from one country to the next. And my experiences with authorities from one country to the next has been totally different. Mm-hmm. I mean, I spent a lot of time in Burma. I've been banned and blacklisted from the country, but I've, but I haven't had really any negative experiences with the authorities there. They're menacing and they're sinister and the country is run by a bunch of thugs. But the fact is, is that my, when working, I never really had a problem with that. But yet, at the same time, and I've, I've and been banned and deported from the country. It's a reality. Yeah. yeah, that's Whereas because you're in, working mostly with the with the 
I, the people themselves uh, and avoiding the authorities when, when necessary? Yes and no. Just, I mean, yes and no. I just think that, just you know, the, the higher structures of the country, you know, of that particular country, they clearly, they don't want stories to be told. They, Do they you feel eyes be, on you when you're out they, working there? Uh, it, and I'm not talking about just from the people you're photographing. No, They're, actually, to be honest with you, I mean, I think it's it's. You, I think I end up end up worrying more about the people who I'm photographing and the people who I'm working with than with right. my own yeah, than so. my own safety. Okay. Because the fact is, if I get in trouble, you know, I have an embassy that I can call. Right. You know, a lot of people don't have that protection. I mean, you look yeah, at what's happening yeah, in Burr yeah. right now. You've got two amazing Reuters journalists who are on trial who can face up to 15 years in jail for for telling. A piece of the of, of Burma that is so important for people to know about, but the authorities have mm-hmm. have clamped down on them. And I wanted to back the, the work in Malaysia. Which is the group uh, of people that are generally uh, so, finding themselves? So the work that I did for the for the Seven Doors project in Malaysia, it's looking at all different types of ethnic communities from Burma mm-hmm. who have fled Burma to Malaysia okay. to seek asylum. Um, but yet are not recognized and are, you know, to be honest with you, they're just being, they're being rounded up all the time. Mm -hmm. I mean, immigration authorities are very active there. People end up finding themselves in detention for years on end. Um, and that it affects people, the level of fear that people have in all those different communities, whether you're from the Mon, the Chin, the Kachin, the Rakhine community in, in Malaysia, um, the level of fear is is huge. Mm-hmm. People don't want to leave their houses because they're afraid of getting stopped on the sidewalk. Or, and we're hearing that here too. Yeah, and and and, 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 and this is familiar. and this is what's really interesting about the project that I find is that you know as you go on each particular country, and that's why I like doing these kind of global projects, is because each particular country has their own unique characteristics. But then when you place each country on top of each other collectively, you find these common themes that are shared between all of them. You see how detention is becoming a much more aggressive part of immigration policy, not only here in the U.S., but in Malaysia or in the U.K. Um, And that's why I really love doing these because it it allows people to compare and contrast different situations around the world and see how countries are influencing each other, Mm. how the policies are being shaped by other countries and what their decisions are. Have you seen, and again, big, big question here, but have you seen a culture or a country that, uh, in your opinion, is handling the situation in a, in a more humane or in a more organized manner? Um, right now, no. And it's not because there aren't. It's just because I haven't mm-hmm. – I'm not far enough in the project to kind of have been exposed myself mm-hmm. to that. I mm-hmm. hope I end up mm-hmm. seeing that at some point in mm-hmm. time. And how far along are you – you're just starting the, the U.S. aspect of it, is that true, more or less? Yeah, yeah just yeah. starting the U.S. aspect. I kind of started that – the towards last fall. Mm-hmm. Um, and I started the whole Seven Doors project the beginning of last year. So I'm about a year and a half mm-hmm. into the project. And that's how some work you'd put on Instagram, which gets yeah. us back to the question earlier, which is, or the comments earlier about, uh, you know, the best ways to show off this work. Yeah. I mean, Instagram does have its advantages. And I saw some, you know, you were, you were uh, waiting for a woman to be released from a detention center with her yeah. family, friends, and supporters the other day. Yeah. And, you know, I'm now aware of that situation, and yeah. I wasn't otherwise. So, well, you know. I can tell you, I really appreciate you saying that because I've never really held too much currency in social media. Mm-hmm. You know, I've never really given it that much. Uh, I don't know. I've never really given it that much. Mm-hmm. And for you to say that means a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not – I mean, I've got like 1,200 Instagram followers, mm-hmm. and I've never been a person who wants to fill – 
my my followers list with tens of thousands or hundred thousands. I've never aggressively done that. Um, and I, and you know, and when you put out it, when you see people that have 250,000 followers or whatever, and they put out an amazing picture, you really realize that like really 1% or even less than 1% of the people who are their followers react to it in a way. And just to hear you say that with the, the minuscule number of people that I have and that it has made a difference. Well, you know, maybe that fills me a little, little bit of, <laughs> of optimism <laughs> with it, you know, but I'll still turn to walls always. By the way, John is a bot. I just want you to know that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hate to pop That's the bubble, but I couldn't, I, I didn't want you to bot. walk out of yeah, the solution. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, Tell us a little bit about the, what what you foresee uh, with the U.S. aspect of this project, um, some of the concerns going forward, uh, oh. some of the hopes, uh, uh, some know, of the problems. That's uh, a great question. I mean, I think right now I'm just – I don't really – I'm coming into it with very little pretense. I just want to see where this thing takes me over the next year or two. Another question to follow up and throw this in there is now you're in your home country or one of your home yeah. countries and where you grew yeah. up and that's going to have a whole yeah. other effect on you. Oh, sure. I mean, yeah. really. And uh, that's a good thing, you know? I mean, I, I, I am – I want to see things in this country that make me feel hopeful or outrage me or make me want to challenge what's happening, you know? I mean, I, I really want that. And I'm excited about that. And this project and photography is something that is, is helping me through that kind of process. It helps me understand, you know, the country in a whole different way than I did before. Places where I grew up, people who I know where they grew up, you know? I mean, I think that that's, that is such an important part of... And yeah, it's not just Arizona and the border Absolutely of there, not. I mean, like, I'm looking really. forward to going to, again, places where I've never really spent much time. I'm looking forward to going to Louisiana mm -hmm. and Mississippi and Alabama. I'm looking forward to spending time in Philadelphia, which has probably the highest rate of ICE arrests in the U.S. Hmm. You know, I, I'm really looking forward to... I'm looking forward to spending time in Chicago. Um, all these places, I think, are going to end up contributing to me having a much better understanding of this country that is my – the country that I was born in but I have been away from for so long at, and, and actually been away from at such a defining point in the time of, of the U.S. Mm -hmm. I, I missed 9-11. I wasn't here for then. I had moved – I mean I moved away from New York. I think it would have been like in Jan or February of – two. no, the end of 2000 mm -hmm. I moved away. But I'd been here since 93. Mm -hmm. um, and I've been – I missed the recession. I missed the housing burst. I missed a lot of – You I didn't miss anything. No, no. I mean I, I, I wasn't here. I had <laughs> – yeah, I, mean, yeah, I come no, home. I, I talked. With family and friends and see the stress and everything on yeah. on their mind. I missed the, you know, I wasn't here for Obama's election. Mm -hmm. I wasn't here for Trump's election. Right. So in that sense, I'm I'm really excited to be back. And do you think that being here will change the the photo process side of it in terms of well, let's say even from film the digital, from who you're going to look to for outlets for the networks you're going to build. Uh, do you plan on that? Do you even have a yeah. time frame on how long this is going to be, or it's open ended? I, you know, I don't really have a time frame, but I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about where I can see this work go. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, th I think having lived in Asia, you have a bit of freedom and flexibility with things. You know, you can put stuff in places that you don't need permits for, and and everything. I, I I'm really excited about where things might take me here in the U.S. 
in terms of how I, how far I can take that work because I think that's a big part of who I am and what I do as a photographer. It's like, you know, where can I see this work get? Mm-hmm. That's what, that's a big motivating factor for me in, in, in driving me forward with every month or each new story or each new trip. You know, how can I, how can I get expect, these pictures? Where you, can I get them? Do you hope to, or do you expect that you'll find uh, one or two subjects that you'll, people or stories that you'll continue with throughout the whole time? Yeah, or, yeah I hope so. I mean, I've met, I've met over the past 35 days, I've met some really incredible people who I really do plan to stay in touch with, um, you know, follow their stories over the next year or two, hopefully. Um, and there's a lot of really amazing, intrepid people working on the ground here in the U.S. from individual activists, academics, to small little organizations that have absolutely no funding whatsoever. And you wonder, how do they? How are they doing this? And even law enforcement, you know, who is yeah, you know, doing their thing. Sure. And, you, and, you, and for me, it's like, you know, this is a great time for me to be able to see who, who can I collaborate with to make sure that this language is included in whatever they're trying to do to make a difference, you know? Well, on that note, I, I, I'm, I'm thinking as you, I'm listening to you talk, I'm listening to this past hour or so of conversation, and I have no doubt that there will be people listening to this episode and who have passions similar to yours, okay? Um, and they have these energies and they say, you know, this sounds like something I'd want to do. I don't have the time, the money. I can't just drop what I'm doing, pick up, fly off to the other side of the, the universe <laughs> or anything like that. But you However, <laughs> I think it's important to note that if you are really thinking in those terms, all right, open up a local newspaper, talk to neighbors, go to your local bulletin board online. Find out what's going on because I have little doubt that in down the street from you, in the town that you live in, there is something going on that you could possibly make a difference for to make a few phone calls to go speak to some people. There are large, large problems in the world and there are smaller problems that are local. And maybe that's a good place to start off with. Yeah, completely. And I, and I also think that, you know, to kind of add on to what you just said, I think that there's a lot of really big, big problems in small local places too, you know? Yes. And, and for people who live in a small place, that problem might be just as big to them as, a, as something that's on a more national level, you know? They're all and, pieces and of the puzzle. Completely. And I, and I think that curiosity really, you know, can take people a, a, a long way. And I, I am I am an optimistic heart, and I believe that if you want something, if you want to do something, there are ways of making it happen. And if you're a photographer who's just starting out in the business and wanting to do something, I mean, the fact is that this is a time where the business is, in, is just, it seems like it's just a complete mess. But there are ways of doing things mm-hmm. that are outside of the traditional and when you recognize that, it's quite liberating to think, you know what, I don't, I don't have to feel like I can do, do a photo project by having to be on assignment for somebody. Work within the parameters you know? of your own yeah. reality. I can do, I yeah. can do things. There's grants out there. There's funding out there mm-hmm. to find. You just got to spend the time to do it. And once you do find it, it's so it, – it is. It's, I think it's, a, it's an amazing process to realize, oh, man, you know, I can do this work without having to fit into that, you know – compartment of the business. Um, and, and also at the same time at a different scale, you can mm-hmm. walk away because this type of work, I, 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 you know, the fact is that it impacts 
you as a photographer, mm-hmm. as a human being, as you're doing this work. It's not that you're just doing it because and, it's and your job. And what you're going to bring from your experience yeah, over there to, the, exactly. to here is going to be incredible. These kind of stories, they shape you as a human being yeah. too. And that's a really important for, thing for people to understand and keep in mind as you're, as you're working, as you're a young photographer or whatever, that, you know, these are your decision to move forward with these kind of stories, whether it be a small thing locally or something nationally or something globally. I mean, you're putting yourself out there to let things reshape who you are. You know, it's a very personal thing too. And that is really exciting. Mm, That's a good good place to end. Yeah. Uh, I do want to ask you a question though. Can you uh, explain a bit what Seven Doors for the title of the the project? Um, That's a great question. I'm I'm really, I'm happy that you asked it. I I started the project with no title. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what the title was going to be. And I met a... I met a guy in the UK, this would have been last spring, and we were uh, talking in a park, and he was sharing his story with me, and he had been in in immigration detention in the UK for three years, um, stateless guy, um, and he was talking about his experience, and I was telling him a little bit more about the project, and after a couple of hours of talking, towards the very end of it, he said, you know, when they put me into detention, I remember them. Wa- I remember only having to walk through one door into the detention center, and I was in there for three years, and it was an experience that I'll live with for the rest of my life. And he goes, "In the day that I was released, he goes, I remember the authorities in the detention center walking me through seven different doors from my cell until the door where they said, there you go, you're free.'" And then he turned to me and he said, you know, how can I be free? I'm not free. This experience is going to – I'm going to live feeling like I'm in detention for years to come because of this experience. And for me, him saying that was like this gift. It was a gift of him saying, I know what the kind of project is that you're working on and that's why I've titled the project Seven Doors. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Great. Come back and tell um, us. Come, yeah. Come back and talk yeah. to us. I have yeah. a feeling we're going to have you back here because there's so much to talk about. Uh, Greg, if people want to see more of your work, where should they go? What uh, what online outlets do you have? Um, I would say that you can go to, for the new project, go to sevendoors.org. That's the number seven doors.org. Um, for the larger project, the 12-year project on statelessness, you can go to nowherepeople.org uh, or specifically tying it into uh, the reason why I'm here in New York right now, which is all about the Rohingya, which I'll be going back to, to Southeast Asia next month to do more work. That's exiledtonowhere.com. Okay. Yeah. And Instagram. And, and, and Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> and which Instagram. Is? That is G-R Constantine. And there you have it. Mm-hmm. It's been it's been great being here. Thanks so much for having pleasure me. Pleasure having you. Pleasure, pleasure, pleasure. If you're not a subscriber to our show, I will not shame you because I'm not that kind of guy. I do, however, urge you to put the shame behind you by heading on over to iTunes, Overcast, Player FM, SoundCloud, or YouTube and sign up for instant access to all of our upcoming shows along with access to over 100 past episodes. And for now, on behalf of John Harris, Jason Tables, and myself, thank you so much for tuning in today.